season two of the JKR podcast powered by Black Cobra Sports. My name is Jay Shriglin and I'm the host. Let's dig into today's episode after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode sponsor is Mind Baseball, located in Dallas, Texas. Their bats are made from 100% European beech wood, which allows for more density, which then leads to more power. I mean, who doesn't want more power? We all know chicks dig the long ball. Multiple studies prove that beech outperforms maple, birch, and ash that you're probably used to swinging. Beech wood straight grains mean for less breaks, and mine baseball exceeds the MLB regulations in that category. Are you also frustrated with seeing the dried paint spots on your barrel? Mine Baseball uses a family secret technique that leaves a perfect finish every time. If you set their bat next to another brand, you will make sure that you see the difference. Lastly, they also use a built-in grip to reduce vibrations. It is the same technology that is used to reduce recoil in rifles. Make sure to check them out. Go find them on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Um, on Instagram, their username is at mine, M-I-N-E, baseball. Check them out, but let's dig into today's episode. And welcome back to the JKR podcast. Today we have 1997 first round pick for the Colorado Rockies and the Texas 12 director of youth programs for College Station. We got Mark Mangum on the JKR podcast for the Texas 12 baseball series powered by Mind Baseball. Mark, super pumped to get you on the show, man. How are you doing today? Awesome, man. Thanks for having me on. It's a thrill. Uh, Glad I could come on. I, I'm excited about whatever we're going to be talking about. Let's do it, man. Awesome. Awesome. Like I said, pumped to get you on the show. Pumped to, you know, dig into your career on the field, off the field with the Texas 12 as well. Um, but before we dig into the whole baseball side of things, I have one question I'd like to ask everybody that gets on the JKR podcast. And that is, for those who don't know you, how would you introduce yourself? Who exactly is Mark Mangum? All right. Well, Generally, I don't talk about baseball much. It's been I've had enough baseball. I love it. It's great. But uh, and then and there's there's some things that um, I know we're going to get into that I typically don't go around telling everybody uh, for my own personal uh, for my own reasons. But before we get to the baseball stuff, who's Mark Mangum? Mark Mangum. Well, first of all, I love Jesus. I'm a Christian and I've got a, an incredible wife. Um, she's amazing. And uh She's had she's put up with my stuff over the years and and we've learned to grow and love each other more and more through good times and bad. And I've got an eight year old son and he is a mess and I love the heck out of him. He's got a good heart, but he is a human wrecking ball slash caveman. And so we're trying to wrangle him and I'm trying to figure out how to do all that stuff. And uh, I love I love adventure, man. We I've been on some what I consider to be big hikes in my life that have uh, one of them at least was kind of. It, it changed in a sense it changed the way I, I it didn't change my life but it changed the way I was living and the way I went about doing stuff it was an eye-opener I, I do jujitsu I do all kinds of weird stuff um and I think all the all, a lot of the other coaches think it's kind of funny and weird and, and I'm told all the time that I should have been a, I'm a right-handed pitcher I was I'm, I'm told that I should have been a left-handed pitcher and so that kind of I'm a little bit uh different I don't think I am but that's the way it, uh it comes across, I guess, or people tell me about, but that, so that's the, 
that's the non-baseball side. On the baseball side, I'm, I am the director of youth programs in College Station, Texas, for the Texas 12. Um, played six years pro ball, drafted by the Rockies in 97. A year later, traded to the Expos. That's how old I am. Um, and uh, and that was a great experience. Got to play with some great guys, had a blast. And then and then from there, I got into coaching and, and, and joined the 12 around 2010. And and it, my job descriptions evolved, and and currently I'm working with with uh, eight to fourteen year olds in our coaching staffs, uh, just trying to get that thing moving and rocking and rolling, take care of those kids and their families. Okay, so a couple another non baseball questions here for you. So you talk about your love adventure, going hiking, but uh, doing jujitsu. Jujitsu. Yeah. So how did you get, how'd you get, how did you get, get started in, in those two, you know, hobbies and maybe some of those adventures that you've been on? Man, I, uh, the hiking, the jujitsu and hiking stuff all kind of happened at the same time. So I'm a big fan of the Jocko podcast, Jocko Willink, former Navy SEAL. And he's always talking about jujitsu uh, and that type of thing. My best friend was working for a company at the time also called the program and they work with division one uh uh well not division one they work with any any type of sports program mainly um college at the time and now they've gone into the corporate world but they have a saying uh be comfortable being uncomfortable jocko talks about some of the same stuff and so i just decided i Long story short, if I need to defend myself or my family, I need to be a better man and grow myself. I need to learn how to, to do those things. So I got into jujitsu, and I'm the oldest guy that goes in consistently and uh, kind of cracks me up because I'm always rolling with guys that are about 20 years old. And rolling is just compete, kind of competing or whatever, practicing. But um, so I got into that, and then around the same time that I started that, I went on a hike with this company I was telling you about before the program, and they we went on a, a rim-to-rim hike in the Grand Canyon. It was a 12-hour hike. I, I can't remember, 24 to 26 miles. And I got to go Scott Frost, the uh, the former Nebraska head coach and Nebraska legend, was there. And there's a 65-year-old man that was number 72 in the world in um, CrossFit at the time. And there was a time where he was struggling and he never quit and he never stopped talking. In fact, at one point he was told, let us talk more walk, but we just kept going and going and going. And at the end, his name was John. He was, I can't remember his last name. He was the UAB defensive coordinator about four or five years ago. This was at that time though. Um, we finished the skin had fallen off of a bunch of his toes and he just kept trucking. And I remember that week, I didn't realize how hard the hike was. It was pretty miserable. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life to that point. And I remember watching a dad somewhere that was probably about 50 years old, had trouble walking up the stairs because he was too heavy. And he had little kids running around him. And I thought, I'm never going to be like that. I'm going to be like John. And and I don't mean that in a mean or horrible way, but I, it's it's a barring, barring medical... Uh, big medical issues. It's a decision. Or even if I have medical issues, if I take better care of myself, then when I get to that point, I'll at least be more mobile. So that kind of changed my life. And then a couple of years ago, we went last year, we went to Mount Whitney, which is the second highest peak in, uh, or the highest peak in the 48. 
states. I know there's 50, but if you take those away, it's the highest peak in the, the lower 48. I always feel that's weird because Hawaii is lower, but um, and it was the highest peak and we went and did that hike. And that was a different kind of adventure, but it, it just has gotten me comfortable being uncomfortable. And it made me wonder what else can I do? So then I started to jump into jujitsu and um, I'm the old man in class and, and I crush all the younger guys sometimes. Uh, but but it, man, it's great. It's a lot of fun. And I just, I, I want to see what else I can do because I honestly, when I played, I don't think I knew how good I was. In fact, I know, say that. I know I didn't know how good I was. If I had, if I had taken the same attitude that I have now of, of, man, just see what you're capable of. Don't worry about messing up. I've messed up plenty in my life. I have yet to die. You're not going to die on the baseball field. Put it all out there. I think a lot of times I was a little bit too reserved in the way that I played and I didn't just let it hang out. And uh, and so I've learned to kind of live life more and 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 challenge myself. And I in most situations, I love being uncomfortable if I know that it's gonna lead to growth. It always does, but sometimes I lose that perspective. So so that's kind of the background on those adventures and jujitsu and that type of stuff. Long story. Bear with me, man. I can I can ramble, which no, you may or may no, not. I, I, I love it. I love it when I <laughs> man, I've I've hit two hours on a guest you know, a couple times before. You know, I always love those conversations, just you know, listening about these people's lives. You know, go for it. I mean, I love listening, but uh no, I saw I saw you talking about that. I saw I was going through, you know, doing a little bit of research on you before we hopped on. Uh, I was going through your Twitter and saw something about, you know. Um, a real man, like, you know, raises a family, gets uncomfortable daily. I'm like, man, this is a guy I need to talk to. Uh, but you talk about how when you were playing ball, you really didn't know how good you were. And when did you kind of see that mindset shift to, you know, going from not really knowing how good you are to, you know, let's get uncomfortable daily. Let's see continuous growth. When did that whole mindset uh, change come about? Oh, man, it wasn't when I was playing. I mean, I don't know. I I've always looked at tough situations as adventures. But I never thought of it in that way of like, put yourself in an uncomfortable situation. I, I was 18 and I went out to Arizona and lived by my, I never got homesick. I think it was, it was like, Hey, you're eight. You're, I don't know, man. I've always wanted, I, I would have loved to been to, to explore the world and, and live in the wild West, except for the, except for the violence part necessarily. Cause those people, <laughs> I've, I've, I've listened to a lot of podcasts about that stuff. It wasn't pretty, but I just like exploring and what's the unknown? Well, I'm in Arizona when I was 18 and I was told to stop riding my bike around uh, the neighborhood we were in because it was too dangerous. And I couldn't understand it. That I mean, they explained it to me, but I just would go out and do whatever and meet people. Um, but in, in sports, it's not that I avoided being comfortable, uh, being uncomfortable. I just didn't know how good I was. And I still, I, to this day, I still, I battle that. I mean, I'm six foot two, not the biggest guy in the world, I was, but I'm, but I'm not small by any means, obviously, but, but everybody I played all the whole pitching staff was always in pro ball was always uh, six foot four to six foot seven. And I was looking up at everybody all year. I'd come home in the off season. I'm looking down on everybody, but in my mind, if you're six foot 10, until I really think about it, everybody's taller than me. So I've, I've got kind of this weird reverse Napoleon syndrome of some sort. I don't know what you'd call it, but I, I, I think that's great. There's humility there, but at the same time, I like, I can lack confidence in certain things, but in, in some things I just, I know I'm good. I don't, when I compete, I don't lose. I don't care if it's a board game or basketball. I can't, I don't remember 
I can I can remember in pro ball when I lost uh, because I remember giving up grand slams in front of thousands of people, and I probably I probably lost that game. I'm guessing. But generally speaking, I don't remember losing things. When I compete at stuff, I lose it. And maybe I'm, I know I'm delusional, and that, but I also know that the other guys I play baseball with that are, that are real competitive, they think the same way too. They never lose, which is we're completely lying to ourselves. Well, I've always been competitive and all that stuff, but until I got into my 30s or late, late 20s, um, you know, the hardest thing I ever did was get into the college that I wanted to go to, which was Texas a and I had to get in there without baseball because I had been out of school for so long because uh, I, I got drafted out of high school. Getting into Texas A&M was the biggest accomplishment of my life to that point, bigger than getting drafted for me. might sound crazy, but at that point, I thought I started challenging myself and, and wondering what else was possible a little bit, always trying to get better, be a better man. And along the way, I saw um, what was happening to men in our country. Right? This was like before 2010. And I started getting a passion about like being a good man. I had a great father have a great father, but, um, and then when I got about 38 or 39 years old, I flipped a switch and like turned it on full bore. I mean, I don't have endless energy, but I stopped. I started learning how to don't be grumpy when you come home to your wife, be a better man than that. Uh, you know, I'm grumpy when I come home, that's a decision. I'm tired, push through that instead of dragging throughout the day. I started when I'm tired, I do 10 burpees. You do 10 burpees, you're good to go for 45 minutes. I promise you. Um, so when you're studying late at night for your finals and you you need a break and your brain's tight, do 10 burpees. You'll be good to go for 45 more minutes. But um, and then and then coaching these kids, man, I've really seen where where we're going. I see a lot of single moms that are struggling, and I see kids that are trying to figure out what a what a what a man is and what masculinity is. And there's that whole debate going on today, which is regardless of what you think about it. Uh, uh, manly men that take care of their families and do right by their 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 families, their wives, their their wife, and their their children. That's an that is, I believe, becoming a uh, a rarity nowadays. And and we're in we're endangered. We need more men in this country. That um, I don't I don't I'm not much interested in the whole debate about toxic max masculinity. I think that's a whole other concept. I, I think I could debate anybody about that and. But but I think that's where it all came from when when I started where that started was was uh, when I got into Texas A and M and then it's just built and then a flips switches have been flipping with different things that have happened in my life and things that I've had to go through that I never thought would happen to me and uh, some of the worst times in my life are where I've learned the biggest lessons about what it means to be a man. Okay. Well, we can, I mean, I want to dig into that a little bit more, but let's let's go ahead. Let's dig into the whole baseball side of things. Yeah. That way, we don't get too off too off track. You know, uh, you but, dude, rain me in anytime, man. I won't be. <laughs> I, I know. Look, I know myself. I know my shortcomings. So rain me in. I love it. Okay. All right. But no. So let's let's take it back to you know you're eighteen. That you're the eighteen year old kid having that adventure there in Arizona. A little bit before that, going through that recruiting process a little bit in high school before getting drafted. Take us through that whole, you know, recruiting process, the MLB draft experience. Take us through that a little bit. I know that's a loaded question, but kind of take us through that a little bit. Yeah, my I think my path was a lot different at, at the time than most of the guys that got drafted, especially the high draft picks. 
And then also today, it's completely different than today. So my, uh, I don't know, freshman year in high school or sophomore year in high school, I was getting a lot of attention from colleges, but it wasn't, it wasn't like it is today. Um, in 97, we were committing right up to the deadline. Like it, it wasn't happening early. Uh, but I got some attention. I'd go to camps and the coaches would talk to me a little bit extra. And and, and I knew what was coming, um, how some people had prepared me for it. And they gave me a heads up. And I was just then figuring out that that all this stuff was real. Like being what people had told me about my talent was actually real. Um, my junior year in high school, I got a knot underneath my shoulder blade. It changed the, my my arm action and my, my elbow, my slot. And my velocity dropped and interest went away. And I didn't really notice it much because, again, at that time, people weren't, there wasn't a whole bunch of, of communication except for you'd get you get people mailing you some envelopes or in the snail mail and, and whatever. And then I had a coach pull me aside, ask me if he could work with me. A guy I trusted, he changed my arm slot. My velocity went up five miles an hour the next week. Remember, he'd come down. So it's not like, I was throwing one or two miles an hour harder than I had thrown at the beginning of the spring. This was the summer. And then after that, Georgia Tech saw me in a tournament um, in Ohio and uh, Texas A&M and Texas and Texas Tech and Miami. These were all schools. Miami was uh, crushing it at the time. And uh, so I got invites to do those, go on those visits. I ended up only going on uh, three because uh, they just weren't, they were a little bit tiring for me. And I, I don't like a bunch of, I like simplicity, right? So um, I was blown away by every visit I went on. It was incredible. I chose Georgia Tech along the way. Um, and I and I chose Georgia Tech, like I said, probably, I may have called them like the day of or the, the day before signing day. And that's just kind of the way it happened, <laughs> which is wild. I don't know how those coaches... That must be stressful. But, um, and then the draft, I had, I had, I guess it was the summer before my senior. So it was the summer right before my senior year. Had some scouts kind of come over to the house throughout the fall and the spring, they're coming over to the house. I had some unbelievable scouts. A few of them were mentors, a guy named Ralph Gar, who was with the Braves at the time. Um, he's a, He's a uh, Atlanta Braves great. Well, I think he played for the Braves. He was a big league. He was a really awesome big league player. And then a guy named Rene Gallo, who uh, was with the Indians at the time. And Rene, I remember Rene. I look back. Rene knew they weren't going to draft me because I probably wasn't getting past the first round or the first few picks in the second round. And the Indians were had an earlier pick. He knew they weren't going to pick me earlier in the draft. And I probably wasn't going to last to the second and one day he came in and sat down and he goes, are, are you ready? And um, and I said, uh, ready for what? And he goes, are you ready for the adventure? And I said, well, yeah, I guess. What do you mean? He goes, you're, you're going to get drafted. You're ready to do this. Like he, had, he, knew, he knew I was going somewhere. I didn't know where still. And it was just really cool because he, he, he said, you bet you need to be ready. You think you're ready, but you're not. Here's what's going to happen. He told me, and he told me after five years, you need to review whether or not you're going to do this for the rest of your career, as far as your physical ability goes, or if you, or if you're going to go back to school, because if you go out of high school after five years, you're not going to go back to college. That just doesn't happen. You got a house, a wife, family, cars, payments, can't do it. 
And that stuck with me, but he was more of a mentor. And those the scouts were awesome. They were incredible when they came in the house. Some were more personable than others, but they, they were incredible. And they felt like friends. And, and actually, Ralph Gar and Renee Gallo, I, I honestly, I, I felt like there was a really, they knew they weren't drafting me. And they still, they took care of me as an 18-year-old kid that didn't know what he was stepping into. And it was fantastic. So that that's the that's the college and the and the professional scout uh, recruiting type situation that went on with me at that time. So building those relationships with those couple of scouts throughout that draft process, did you keep that relationship and that just that mentorship they had with you throughout the time when you were playing in the Rocky system when they're you know being scouts for the Braves, the Indians? Did you keep those relationships, or you know maybe after the draft when they kind of had mentored you for a little bit? They were like, all right, well, let's time to move on to the 1998 draft class. Uh, when I saw them, it was a handshake and a hug. But remember, this is 1997. The cell phone I ever had was 1999. And it was a big, it was like a, it was a small brick and that, that I carried around. And uh, we would all put our antenna, we had antennas you could pull up. And you would put the antennas against the window in the, on the minor league bus to try to get enough reception so that you could talk. So by then that was two or that was two years later. Uh, you know, I didn't know how to get in touch with them and and we didn't, I don't know if we ever exchanged phone numbers. I, I wish I could tell you that we did. We would, we would have, I mean, those are guys that I think I'm guessing they develop relationships with a bunch of kids though. And it would have been quite a task for them to do it. But when we saw them, my dad over the years, still going to baseball games around town, he would see them and they would have great conversations and they'd talk about me. And then when I saw them in the off season or I'd go to a, 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 um, a college game or something like that, early, early scrimmage, they'd be at those. And I taught, sit and talk to them and they, they were just as interested. They were more interested in what I was doing than before I got drafted. So it was really cool. Those, those guys. So the answer is really no, but those guys were incredible guys. And it was a hundred percent genuine. It wasn't, they weren't recruiting me. And then, they turned into different people. Those guys were incredible people. Yeah. So you talk about how you compared your recruiting process to what it is now. Obviously, I mean, I saw a 2027 guy um, commit last night to like FSU or something, and you waited until, you know, the last minute sophomore, junior year or to commit to Georgia Tech. Um, so have, what have you seen when it comes to that comparison through the time that you've got into coaching? I know you are, you know, like as the director of youth, but have, how have you seen the recruiting process change from when you went through it back in 1996, 1997? Oh, man. So what 2027? What? So they'd be what? That's a freshman, eighth grade? Eighth grader. Yeah, that, that's insane. Those guys don't usually end up going to those schools that they commit to. Oh, no. they're. I've, go ahead. You know better than I do. I've, what is I've the, talked to. Man, so you know, let's say let's say I'm talking to a, a guy from the class of 2024 because I don't. You've gone through the podcast. It's a lot of you know yeah. guys who are committed, yeah. um, and I'm talking to some guys and like, oh yeah, I committed as a, as an eighth grader to OSU, whatever, whoever happens to be. Yeah. And then two years later, you know, I decide to you know decommit and go through the recruiting process again. Um, I haven't had anyone decommit twice, but no, I've talked to plenty of people that you're know, like, yeah. oh, well, like I started gaining interest in between my summer of seventh and eighth grade year. And now, you know, I've decommitted from that school. Now I'm going through that recruiting process again, or now I'm committed to this school. No, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think that like, I'm thinking, okay, like, cause okay. So I got into this whole, the whole baseball side of things, learning from about this, like the commitment and the whole college recruiting process about last year at this time, Max yep. Clark 
first player I kind of really talked to. I'm trying to be an agent. So like now I kind of view this as a way to, you know, connect with as many coaches, players as possible. But last right. year I saw Max Clark, obviously the number one player in the 2023 class. He, he goes, yeah, I committed before I played my first high school game. And at that time I'm thinking, oh, that's just because he's just so good. Number one, yeah. number one player in his class. And now, you know, this past year or so, this past 12 months, I've learned that, you know, that's a normal thing. Like if you're a, if you're a guy who's going to go to a power five, you're getting recruited as an eighth grader. And that's just, you know, crazy to me, but kind of take us through maybe what you've seen um, as a coach. Yeah. And I, well, I'll try to keep this, uh, this uh, man. Okay. This is my struggle. I, I could go on forever. I'm going to keep, I'm going to try my best to keep this short. Um, I did. So I, I, I've been, let me back up though and say in the coaching, I do the youth stuff, but I, um, I did until two until this last summer. I always had a high school coach. I mean, a high school team. It's just gotten to where I, I I've asked. I've talked to our our CEO, and I was like, "Hey, man, let me just do the camps and stay here. I've done my fill. I don't need to like. I don't. It's no ego boost for me to talk to help these kids. I mean, I want to help the kids get into college. I still will, but like, I don't need to call talk to the college coaches and all that type of stuff. And like, I don't care about all that. I've done all that stuff. That's great. It's fun. Those guys are always awesome, but. So I'm very familiar with it. So with that said, I think it's insane. I I understand why it happens. The college coaches don't really have their hand is enforced. It's it's, it's a similar subject with the NIL, um, in that you these college coaches don't want to do it. I mean, I'm sure sure some of them do. They don't want to be doing that stuff. They think it's ridiculous. But if they don't, so if there's there's Johnny eighth grade over there and he's so good. And his and his parents are both six foot five, and he's already throwing eighty seven miles an hour. Well, man, if you can be the first co coach to contact them and get your hooks in early, that sticks with that kid for a while. Um, now, some of the reasons why they end up decommitting from that school is maybe I'm the coach that recruits them, and then I leave and go to another school, and we had a great relationship. He wants to come with me, but a lot of times, if that kid throws eighty seven, never grows anymore, has an arm problem, whatever it is, never throws any harder then when they're a junior or senior in college, then I pull that scholarship offer. Or I say in eighth grade, hey, it's too far away. We're not going to give you a number right now. It's ridiculous to give you a number because I don't know what's going to be available down the road. We'll get to that later. Well, we never get to it. And and it's a, it's a, it's a nice, easy way. It boosts the egos of the good players. Um, and I understand what those kids, they're kids, and they're getting offered that. Why wouldn't you, right? So I, I don't blame them either. But it's created this crazy rat race. Everybody's trying to keep up with everybody else on the on the parent side, the the player side, and on the coach's side. And it's created this ridiculous rat race and and, and snowball effect. But and the the reality is, if those same kids waited until they were seniors to commit, they would still be able to probably pick from their top three schools or three of the top five and 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 that's if you're good people are going to find you and all that type of stuff but there's this big rush and everybody freaks out about it I didn't like I told you I was injured my junior year I could still play but I was going backwards my senior year nobody knew who I was and all of a sudden I'm throwing mid-90s and I'm getting and I'm 165 pounds skinny six foot two kid and they can't, nobody can understand how I throw so hard. And I came out of nowhere. And well, in my mind, I didn't come out of nowhere. I had a little injury, 
but in everybody else's mind, nobody in my school or most people in my school didn't know that I was that good. And I never talked about it, but uh, these kids, man, it's insane. And, and it's hard to put the blame anywhere to me because I understand where it's coming from everywhere. I, I think there's, it's the wild West. NIL is the wild West. There's gotta be something that gives, and I hate to put restrictions on I hate to re I hate regulation of any kind, generally speaking, but I think to protect kids and to give the coaches their lives back and let's just be reasonable. I think it's good for the sport. And I think most college coaches would agree about, it. I don't, I don't know how that benefits anybody. So, but Hey man, you got to do what you got to do and you got to, you got to work within the system. Do it. I, I mean, I say go for it kids, but but if you're not, anybody listening to this, that you're not committing when you're a freshman or eighth grade, don't worry, man. Most kids aren't getting recruited that early. There's, it's not, it's, it's a small percentage that are, and the ones that are end up changing their commitments. I'm not saying they don't go to a school that's as prestigious. I'm not saying that, but like your time will come. If you're going to be that good, your, your time will come. It'll be fine. And people will find you. If you're that good, people will know who you are. It just might take until your junior or senior in, in high school, you know? Yeah. And no, you're right. I mean, that was one thing I forgot to mention was the whole, you know, aspect of I'm sure college coaches don't want to be going out and talking to an eighth grader oh. at the, um, whatever, whatever tournament it would be at when they're, when they they're can't, it's, they can't believe it. They're like, I can't believe I'm out here looking, watching little kids play eighth graders. I know you don't think you're little kids, you're little kids and you don't play good baseball yet. There's, they're not in, in, in eighth, if you if you can throw three pitches for strikes when you're in eighth grade and you throw hard, that's great. You still don't know how to pitch. It's still not good baseball. You're going to get all the eighth graders out. But if we put you on a uh, – I'm going to say Texas because that's where I am. But if we put you on a, in a 6-6A six, six is the highest classification for schools, the biggest schools in Texas, we put you against um, the, the top – we put you against an average 6-A uh, team, you're going to get hammered. You're going to get smashed around the yard a little bit, and it's okay. You should, you're an eighth grader. But um, in, in two years, you might be dominating those schools. It's okay. But, but like, there's times. So digging into my last question, before we actually dig into all everything about the Texas 12. So you talked about, you know, when you're an 18-year-old going to Arizona, doing all those different adventures, just being an 18-year-old on your own. But let's dig through those other six years of your minor league life. You know, maybe what some of those surprises were, maybe, maybe some of those best memories. Take us through what that minor league life was like playing in the Rockies and the Expo system. And that was uh, awesome. I, when I stopped playing, it was my own choice. What I wasn't enjoying baseball anymore, but what I missed was the minor league experience. There's part of it I didn't miss, but it was the relationship with those guys and the fun things that happened and the challenging things that happened. But I got traded one year after being drafted to the Expos. Um, I got traded to the Expos one year after getting drafted by the Rockies and I met guys from different countries. There's still a Venezuelan guy who lives in Nebraska now that I keep in touch with, Albanus Machado. And he was like, from the beginning, I don't know how he feels, but I just felt like he was he was my brother from the beginning, man. And we still talk to this day. I, I haven't been able to get him to move to Texas, but it's those relationships that are incredible. You know, you have, you run into fun and funny situations and sad and serious situations, but whether it's the players on the team or the people in the community that are on the, they have booster clubs or they used to fan clubs. You'd probably call them. 
that I probably pay a little bit extra and, and they get to hang out with us a little bit and they, they give us snacks when we go on our road trips to whatever. And that, that stuff was just a blast. Got to meet some really interesting people. Um, in the lower minor leagues, you, we played at some garbage stadiums. One was a, a peewee league football field where uh, left field down the left field line was like 275 this is a pro ball. 275 down the left field line, but right center was like 480 or something. It was stupid. And later on, I played with some of those guys that played that field, and they're like, yeah, for the first three innings, just throw high fastballs, because do you remember the sun went down over over the center field batter's eye? Yeah. Well, the batter's eye was too short, so they couldn't, nobody could see the ball for three innings. And so the the first, nobody, everybody knew there weren't going to be any hits if if a guy was leaving the ball high on purpose or not. And, and Babe Ruth in the Northeast, Babe Ruth played in every stadium in the Northeast, by the way, according to minor league uh, stadium, you know, it's, it's one of those, just like George Washington ate at every tavern in the Northeast, but <laughs> um, it was a blast. So I didn't care. I, I chose to believe it because I love history. So that stuff was awesome, man. It was incredible. Um, I played, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll finish this answer, the answer with this. I, I played with a guy, I won't say his name, um, I got to see him a few years ago. He lives in Texas now, but I was struggling to enjoy baseball and, I, and he, he was too. And he was from LA, like uh, inner city LA. And he had gone to three years of college. And I said, Hey, when you finish school, you're going to go back. You're going to go back and finish your degree. Or I said, have you ever thought about leaving baseball early and going and getting your degree. And he said, no way. And I said, why not? I said, you, you know, you and I have talked about it. We're both not really enjoying it much. He said, if I went and did that, my community would never forgive me. And I, they'd, I'd never be able to show my face there again. And I, that was a wake up call for me because that was his way out of um, the situation that he grew up in that he didn't think was a great situation. And I don't think any of us would say it's a great situation. Um, but he wanted to represent that community and he, those were his, his people and he knew they wouldn't forgive him. And, and there was a sense of honor about representing them. I thought that was really cool, but I, it was also an eye opener for me because I didn't care what anybody thought about when at my house. I mean, where I grew up, I really don't care. It doesn't matter to me, but I also have circuit had circumstances that were incredibly more advantageous than his. And then another one was uh, Cliff Lee. So when the Cy Young, Right before he got drafted, drafted, I mean, traded, he got traded to the Indians my last year with the Expos. I was sitting with him when he was with the Expos, and I said, hey, you're going to go back to Arkansas and get your degree when you finish. And, and he said, hell no, I'd rather, I'd rather dig post holes the rest of my life than work in an office somewhere. Well, um, or sit in a cubicle, I think is what he said. Well, his situation was he and his, his wife had a daughter who had leukemia. And she was very young, a few years old. And the insurance, the Expos had been helping him out. Uh, the insurance, even for minor league baseball, was, was good. And he knew that he left, if he left the job, that he would lose those benefits. Whereas I could go back. I didn't have to worry about all that stuff. And he, I don't, um, we all have our different motivations. And it was really eye-opening and neat. When you saw Cliff Lee, Cliff Lee, you didn't talk to him the day that he pitched. He was a great guy. Few words would always talk to you though, but on game day, you just didn't talk to him. It, it would make him angry, but you know, he has a job to do and nobody had a problem with it. Um, and then this other guy, he ended up playing 
he didn't enjoy playing. And about the time I, he was probably 24, 20, probably 24 years old. This other guy, when I had that conversation with him, he ended up playing in Japan, played for San Diego Padres, did really well. He ended up sticking around and coaching. Um, I, I won't tell you who with, so people can't put this stuff together. Cause I don't want him to be like, dude, I can't believe you tell people I didn't enjoy playing. I'm guessing he enjoyed it at some point again, but he, he was a coach in uh pro ball, uh, big league, big league team for a few years. And so I thought that was really cool, man. So that is cool. So those are the little perspectives. I, in, in Albanus, this guy that moved into Nebraska, I'll say this last thing in the showers, this one really impacted me in the showers. You have a big room with all the shower heads and that the Latin guys would always throw cold water on the American guys. You're in the middle of your hot shower after the game. They throw cold water and they thought it was hilarious. And I would want to fight every one of them. Right. But you don't, and you just get angry. And then one day I'm walking by and Albanus, the water's hitting his head and splashing on me and it was cold. And then, so he came back to his locker. I said, Albanus, do you always take cold? I thought they just turned the cold water on to throw it on us. And I realized he's taking cold showers. I said, do you always take cold showers? She said, yeah. And I said, why? He said, because where I come from, we don't have hot water. I played baseball for four years with this guy before he said that. It blew my mind and it hit me. It hit me what I had and other people don't have. And it, it was a game changer for me. And I'm already a thankful person and appreciative, but it floored me. And I realized I don't know these dudes like I think I do. I can't imagine what they came from. Never take anything for granted. So there's some minor league stories and some of the stuff that I learned and went through. Um, and those are more personal experiences, you know, than baseball experiences. I have plenty of baseball experiences, but. Yeah. No, I, and I, no, I, I enjoy those stories. Shoot. Um, but no, um, so let's, you, you go, you play five years in the minor leagues. Um, you go, you go back to tech, you go to A&M. You said that was one of the toughest things at your life at that point, kind of where your mindset kind of started to change, but let's dig through that transition to coaching. So when was it that you got motivated to get the start in coaching? When did you start? Where? Take us through that whole transition. Yeah, I had, I had a couple of years where I couldn't go watch baseball. Um, there was a bitterness, but it wasn't, I couldn't place it. And it wasn't towards baseball. Baseball didn't do me wrong. People didn't do me wrong. I was just unhappy. And so I couldn't, I couldn't go to a game without being critical of, of whatever was happening in the game. So I couldn't enjoy it. And then one of my old high school summer league coaches saw me somewhere and said, Hey, why don't you come coach for me? And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go do that. So the first team I coached, uh, Jay Bruce was on that team. And uh, a bunch of other really good Division One players, but um, that was the first first year that I coached, and it was I, I really enjoyed it because it was kids from all walks of life, and I realized that I could I could mentor them, show them the baseball stuff, but also I wanted them to know that there's more to life than just baseball, and so that that's where my desire for coaching comes from is I want to you know all these all these kids. Even Derek Jeter, how old was he when he retired? 40. Like 40, 42. Yeah, 41. Yeah. Like low 40s at some low mid 40s. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the longest careers you're going to, one of the longer careers you're going to see, he still has to be a man for the rest of his life. That's Derek Jeter with a long career. Now take a kid who, for whatever reason, starts playing at 18 years old or 22 years old. They've, they've barely lived in. I've almost been alive. I'm 44. So I've almost been alive. The years I haven't played baseball has now eclipsed the years that I have played baseball. 
Um, and so, and I've got to be a man, I've got to be a husband, all that type of stuff. So coaching that team, that's where I fell in love with it. And what I realized is baseball is what I know the best because I've done it the most. Uh, to, to be honest, if I grew up somewhere where soccer was the most popular uh, sport, I would have, I would have played soccer. I don't know if I was as good, but it doesn't matter. I was just really good at baseball. I knew I could help my family out. We had long talks about it. I knew I could help my family out. And, um, but what I am is I'm a teacher. My mom's a teacher. My dad does seminars and stuff, business seminars. So he's a teacher. And I've learned that I just want to help people. And whatever it is you want to learn, if I know about it, I want to teach. I want to help you. But more than that, I want to make an impact on your life. And that's what I saw when I started coaching. And it was just high school for until for the next five or six years, it was just high school coaching. Um, and, and then when I, around 2010, I, I got into, uh, I moved to College Station and got into coaching some of the younger teams. I didn't think I'd want to or that I would like it. And I actually fell in love with it. Uh, to, to teach an eight-year-old or nine-year-old how to throw a baseball, most, and I say most, a lot of coaches don't have the patience for that it was a challenge for me because I didn't know how to speak it. I knew what I wanted to do, but to, to put it into words, um, it, it seems easy until you start doing it. And the nine-year-old has no idea what you're talking about. And then, then you've got to figure out, well, now what do I say? And that was a challenge to me. And it made me, it, it, it helped me to understand the game of baseball better, or at least the skill parts of it, how, how the body works, how it moves, the biomechanics, it just tapped into this whole new thing. And so that's, that's how I got into the younger age groups. Yeah. So you talked about, so you, you know, you go start coaching at the high school that Jay Bruce was at a couple other division one school, uh, division one uh, players there. And you talk about maybe some of the joys of, you know, actually, you know, instructing people, you know, being a teacher, that's kind of like in your blood with your dad, with your mom, maybe what were some of those, like, I guess, tough transitions of that process of, you know, becoming a coach, being in that dugout. I know you say you didn't watch baseball there for a couple of years, but what were some of those tough transitions, you know, going from the field to going into the dugout and interacting with some of those players and going through that? I don't know. I don't know that there were tough ones. I, I, after I quit, after I quit baseball, you know, we say, and when we want to make ourselves feel better, by the way, us minor league guys that just play the minor leagues will say we retired. When I retired from, no, I didn't, I still say it sometimes, but when I quit baseball um, and I started doing that stuff, the biggest shocker to me was how slow a really good 16-year-old baseball team can is, like the baseball. I would I remember doing our first in and out, and the outfielders were throwing home, and it and it looked so slow to me. You know, you go to a big league game and you see those guys throw it. 200 feet in the air effortless and the ball looks like it's skipping kind of, you know what I'm talking about? It looks like it's skipping and floating. They just have, they have the spin rates higher. They have more life on the ball carries further. These guys were throwing hard. I don't know what they were throwing, but it was low eighties and, and people throw way harder now than in 22. I don't know how it was like 2005 or, or 04 or something like that. But, um, but it's just slow. I mean, the fastest runners, generally i mean there's some kids that run like four twos and they're sophomores in high school but but generally the fastest runners on the field still aren't as fast so that was a weird adjustment i was like holy cow this is slow and that was fine after a few weeks you get used to it but for that first year i think i had a year and a half two years i had about three days where i was like i think i want to go back i want to go back and play 
that was the tough part because I'd be around these kids and I'd be like, I can still. But then I thought, I'm not going to make a phone call to make this start happening until I wake up tomorrow. And then I'd wake up the next morning and be like, no, I'm not doing that. Because I remembered all the things that I didn't like about it. And, and I was miserable. Uh, that was the toughest transition. As far as teaching, I, I mean, it's weird to say, but I enjoy teaching the game of baseball. This I don't know how to, I, I, I can't wrap my head around this. I enjoy teaching and instructing way more generally speaking more than when than playing the game of baseball there were times where i loved playing baseball but but my enjoyment of teaching and coaching and fine-tuning players never goes away the baseball came and went a little bit until it kind of burned itself out this man i, I get home at night if our practice ends at 8 30 and i have trouble going to sleep i'm not like I don't know why I'm just wound up. I'm excited. I've been, I've been loud and barking out stuff and not yelling at kids, like encouraging them and tell them how great their effort is. But that, that energizes me. And, and I, I don't know, man, it was an easy transition for me uh, other than, other than not being able to watch baseball for a while. But once I could get hands on, that was, that yeah. was easier. Yeah. So you said so. you went to college station in 2010, Obviously, that's where the Texas 12 started, I believe. I think that's what Coach Bennett said. But take us yep. through how you got connected with Coach Bennett and uh, how you just got connected with Texas 12 and how that all started. So I graduated from AM, which is in College Station, in 2007. Around that time, I got an email. I met, I saw somebody on campus that kind of he knew who I was through, I don't even know how, still to this day. But, um, and I don't mean that in a weird way. Like he had no reason to know who I was. And uh, he knew Bennett, Dr. Bennett. I got an email from Dr. Bennett asking if I wanted to run a team. And I was just trying, I'm 20, I think I graduated when I was 29 years old or something. And I was like, dude, I, yeah, that's great. I need to graduate and go get a job. Like I can't be messing around with this stuff. And so um, moved to Houston and then moved back to College Station 2010, like you said. And at that point I ran into the, current CEO, Kevin Hodge, who was running everything. And I started connecting the dots. Hey, this is the organization that Dr. Bennett asked me if I could come coach in years before. And uh, I mean, he, he emailed me initially, like at the very beginning, me and Kevin Hodge, the guy who runs it now, and some others. And I happened to be the ones that said no. Kevin and I played pro ball against each other. He was in the twin, Minnesota Twins organization. And so we started reminiscing during a game when we were coaching each other. And it was like a month before I moved to College Station. So I get to college. He asked me if I want to coach. So I get to College Station. I'm coaching. And uh, and I, about a year into it, I was selling. I was an insurance agent at the time. And I'm not very much of a salesperson. And I told him, hey, I have extra time. I can help if you want. So I got a team. And, and then he was like, do you have enough time to run some stuff? And I started running camps and kind of became his assistant a little bit. And then um, I always was like this random guy that tied up loose ends and dealt with parents and helped make rosters and had roles that other coaches didn't have. Um, and then uh, a few years ago, he's like, and he knew I didn't want to be the head administrative guy for the youth. But then a few years ago, he goes, hey, you have a new role. You're the head administrative guy. And you get to do all this stuff with emails and parents and it's, you're already doing it. You just don't have the title yet. It's, it'll be a little bit more work than what you've been doing before, but it'll be fine. And he's right. And so, so that's how I got started there. And that's, that's how, where we are now is, um, 
how I transitioned into that role. And there were other guys that had the role I have now, but Kevin knew I didn't want it. Um, but I wanted to help those guys. And so I kind of taught a lot of those or some of those guys what to do and when to do it. And um, I just didn't want to be responsible for it all at the time. So now I'm responsible for all of it and it's fine. It's all the same. And I'm learning. It's, it's stretching me and learning me and making me uncomfortable and making me learn how to do stuff that I'm, yeah, I put off for a bunch of years. <laughs> so that, that's how I got to where I am now. And it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. Uh, and, and in those 13 years, like we talked about before we started recording, there's a lot of genuine growth for the Texas 12. So how did you see that through your eyes and what type of role did you play in from that growth, you know, with Coach Hodge, with Coach Bennett, yourself, some of the other guys in that organization? What have you seen just through your through your point of view, how the Texas 12 has grown these past 13 years? I mean, I, I don't I think I'm starting to wrap my head around it, but when I came over 2010, there were somewhere between six and 10 teams. And now um, we have over a hundred. Uh, the only location was called station. We opened up two. We, we organically, we were asked to, we keep getting asked to open, bring our operations to other places in Texas. And so we're in two areas of Houston and Houston is, more enormous than you can imagine and uh and so we have two areas in houston that we operate out of we've got a place down on the coast down south further we got san antonio and in, everywhere in between the coast and san antonio which san antonio is kind of the middle of texas if, you, if you're not real familiar with where san antonio is so we've got the whole we've, we've got pretty much the whole uh southeastern slice of texas um, from Louisiana through central Texas down to, down to, I guess you'd say Mexico. I don't know, but, um, that we operate out of, and it blows my mind. We had a, we had a staff meeting the other day and, um, we also have two, we also have the softball program in college station and one in Houston so softball is two years old or a little over a year old and in college station and less than a year old in Houston. And so they're going through growing pains, but it blows my mind. We, we had, I don't know, 160, 180 coaches and GMs there. So over, over the GMs are the team, team parent, right. That does the administrative stuff and signs them up for tournaments. And it, it blows my mind. Now, how was I involved in that? When we, when we went to our first two places in Houston, I would go to Houston and help do presentations, tell them how we were here, the protocol standards, I know this stuff feels weird to you new coaches, but if you stick to your guns and hope with old, uphold your standards and have integrity, the the coach, the parents are going to respect it, get used to it. We will, we will, in a, in a good sense, we will train them what is sane about youth sports, train them what about what is insane in youth sports. And eventually they'll get used to it and go to enjoy what we do, which is less sanity. At least that's our goal than other uh, most of the other youth sports situations. And so I would go and do that stuff. And then after we spread to a couple of places in Houston, um, other than lending support to our other directors, I don't get directly involved with any of the other locations, including the Houston ones anymore. Um, I would if they needed my help, but they don't need my help. They're, they're doing a great job. But I, but our directors were always supporting each other. And, and I, we have the most experience in college station. So we're always um, sharing with them templates we have and how we do things and, and that type of stuff. So. 
not involved anymore, but I was very involved at the beginning in that in that growth, and uh, it's been a blast to watch. I'm I'm very happy to be just in my location right now, though, and not not doing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I do that too, but I'm I'm not asking for that role. So, and you said you were a high school, you coached a high school team as well, correct? For a little bit before you became the youth director. I was summer. It was it was still select travel ball over the summer. It wasn't high. It wasn't a high. It wasn't a school. That's what, yeah, that's, yeah, what, I, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did, yeah, until until last summer, this last summer was the first summer I didn't coach high school stuff since I started coaching. So, so I've, what, I've been doing that since for almost almost 20 years. I, I coached by 17, 18 years coaching the high school over the summer and fall. Okay, so what were some of those relationships or just some of those experiences you've had coaching the high school levels? Did you go and stay with the same age group like they do now? You know, Coach Knox with the class of 23, uh-huh. Coach Bennett with a class of 25. Um, is that how you kind of went about it? You know, did you how did how does that work as a coach for the Texas 12, you know, being being a high school select coach and then that transition to, you know, being the youth director um, and just I guess the differences there? Yeah, they would. So if I had coaches last summer, I had a 14 year old team last spring in 2022 um this fall i would have been their high school coach and that team would have stayed mostly intact there's maybe one or two different players for various reasons but i would have coached them except i didn't coach this last this last summer and fall and then so yes i would have kind of moved up with them and that's typically what happens for the coaches that continue to coach in both they'll stay with the team now some of our so, but some of our high school teams have coaches they've never seen before because for whatever reason, uh, like me now, their, their youth coach isn't coaching in high school. So it, it goes both ways. It kind of depends on the group and, and who the group's coach was when they were in the youth, the youth programs. Okay. So now that you're the youth director, what all does that job entail? I know you said you're staying in college station, kind of staying away from, you know, the Houston's, the Katie's. Um, some of the other Woodland, some of the other programs you guys have in the Texas 12, but what are some of those job duties? Job, what all does the job entail now being the youth director? Uh, so I guess starting our year, our year in our head starts in August um, or July, the end of July or our tryouts. So we have our tryouts. Um, we, I'm in charge of making the roster, setting them, contacting the parents of the new players and the players that are remaining in our in our organization if any kid we have a we we commit to the kids for a full year we're not going to cut a kid the only time we've ever mid-year gotten rid of a kid is because they the kid becomes too big of a problem that's happened one time or the parents are too big of a problem that's happened less than five times in our history but it's absolutely happened the parents are the bigger issue the the, the kids all but one has uh as the, the kids are awesome, man. And we, and we give more leeway to the kids, right? As you can imagine. So anyway, they're still growing up. I call the parents. This is the worst part of my job. The worst three days of my year are after tryouts, creating rosters, and then calling the parents that we're not going to renew our, I don't want to call it a contract. I mean, it's, that's kind of what it is, but renew our um, commitment to them. I call those parents and and I tell them and I talk to them. I mean, I've been on the phone. Um, m- most of the people take it well, or at least it doesn't end up as bad as you always expect it will be. I mean, it's awful. I, I cannot. I've I've been on uh, 
I've been on the other line where moms are crying on the other end and, and I've cried with them at times. And there's some relationships like, I can't believe I'm having to call this person. So there's, there's that part of it. It's awful. Now, after that, it's just getting them in touch with the team coaches and the, and the general managers or the admin guys, making sure that our coaches and, and GMs have rosters with numbers. We have math, we have a lot of spreadsheets and that type of stuff. I send out emails, um, often reminding the parents, the coaches, the GMs of what their duties, what some deadlines, what's expected of them, some leadership training for our coaches, some stuff to tell the GMs how great of a job they're doing. Or if a GM messes something up, uh, then, you know, I might send something out to the whole group and I don't tell them that uh, Mr. GM, an individual person screwed something up. I just say, hey, reminder, here's what we do in this situation. They know, but it's good to get it out to the whole group. We have our winter camps, winter stuff that I send out um, and do marketing for a little bit um, in, in the local community, but also with, with our current players for what our off-season programs are going to be. We do have a tryout in mid uh, December to fill in any gaps with people that have left or in, if there's big injuries and a kid's not coming back. And we'll fill that in, and then it starts over with the new members where I have to send them all that junk again. We do have a new member meeting with a presentation back in August. And then as we go into the spring, just make sure that our – just the little boring details like, hey, make sure we're not we're not playing on Easter. I suggest you play on the front end of spring break so people can go on vacation after you finish Sunday. Don't play on the back end of spring break, that type of stuff. It's up to them to, to create those schedules and those weekends, but I give them those, that information. And throughout the, the year, I, I, I keep in contact with the parents. We have some character development programs that we do um, where we have concepts that we I'll email the coaches and the coaches relay, relay that stuff to the kids and talk to them about integrity and hard work and all those, all those good things that we want everybody to have. And then as we get to the summer, I, I send out emails telling people what to expect as we go into the next tryout and kind of the way we work. And then I have, I also um, run camps over spring break in the summer. So that's, that's kind of, those are the things that I do. There's always something to do. Some days are busier than others, but it's a lot of administrative stuff that pays off big time. And, and anybody listening to this that tries to run a team that, or more than one team and you're not constantly contacting your families to let them know what's going on, you know what happens. It's a disaster because nobody ever knows what's happening and there's always issues and they don't think that you're around enough and, and there's no relationship there. Well, at least when I sit, shoot the emails out, they feel like there's some sort of – I. I at least am connected and know what's going on with the teams and the coaches, even if they haven't seen me in a couple of weeks. So, so you, you guys, have, you guys have your guys' tryouts, you know, you said late July, early August for that upcoming year. So how do you guys market your guys' tryouts for the most part? Is it just word of mouth now, you know, Texas 12, I know when coach Bennett was talking about it, I mean, Texas 12 has built a big enough brand to where, you know, people want to play for you guys. But how do you guys go about, you know, maybe the outreach of the marketing of the tryouts, or is there any recruiting involved in that? Like, hey, you should come to our tryout, this and that. How does that how does that go about, you know, for the tryout process for the Texas? Yeah, this is the coolest thing is uh, to me is uh, in College Station. We don't we don't recruit players. Um, most of our other locations. 
we talked to our coaches about it in the staffing the other day. Don't, you don't need to go recruit players. Here's the deal, though. Like, so if I if I want if I want you, Jace, to come play for us, and you're not so sure about it, and I have to talk you into it, what we have found is, or you're shopping around a bunch of different teams, you're not going to last with us. Not because we're better than you, or or not because you're going to have a bad experience, but if we had to talk you into doing it, there's this weird deal where uh, th- those personalities that weren't sure if they wanted to come, it's they they tend to, I don't know, they think the grass is greener on the other side or, or this, and they don't tend to buy into what we're doing because we had to talk them into it. People that just come to us and want to come to us because of word of mouth, those people tend to stick a lot better. Um, well, they don't tend to, they stick a lot better. Um, like every, every year, uh, we have out of 150 youth players, so 14 you and under for College Station, we might have three people that at the end of the year, we send out something, ask them if they plan to return, if they're accepted on it, if we ask them to re- be on a roster, are they planning on returning? And we, we have less than five that don't want to return every year. And it's, it blows my mind. Sometimes we'll have like two or three. I think we, one year we only had one that wasn't going to return. And some of those are like, they're, they're moving or they just don't want to play baseball anymore or something like that. So we don't recruit. That doesn't mean I might not, I'm somebody might, I might not see a kid and go, Hey man, tell, tell that kid to come to tryouts, but I'm not calling. I'm, I'm a 44 year old man. I am not calling a 10 year old's dad to ask him to come play baseball for me. And, and some people, I've probably irritated a few people listening to this already, but that is, that is brutal to me. Now I'm not, if you have a son and you want, and you're coaching a team and you want the kid to come play, I get it. I get that. But I don't have a son. My eight-year-old doesn't want to play baseball. I'm not calling other eight-year-olds to come play baseball for us or 10-year-olds or 14-year-olds for us. It, it's ridiculous. Here's what ends up happening. The kids in our community, eventually, most of them that are good players come and play for us eventually. And then they say, man, we should have come over here a lot earlier. This isn't what we expected. Um, but word of mouth, uh, we we get those players. Other And I can't – we have we have coaches at other locations. That that's the way they did it before they came over. Eventually, I think they transition out of that. So I know there's some of that that's gone on and we've addressed some of it. Um, but generally speaking, we don't recruit. And there are times where there's a coach that recruits his whole team for us. But when I say it's, uh, if we have 100 teams, it's less than 3%. It's less than three of our teams that that happens on. And it's pretty cool. But, and we do, like, we're like, hey, go ask. I saw this kid over there. Can he play? Baseball? Oh yeah, he's really good at baseball. Man, ask them to come to tryouts. I'll tell a kid that, but I'm not calling. I mean, I don't know, man. It's, these are kids. Let them. I'm not going to do that. Plus, well, like I said earlier, if if we have to, I'm not doing the sales pitch to a ten year old or a fourteen year old. It's. I'll tell you this. It's too easy to manipulate a fourteen ten year old or a fourteen year old, and I think that's pathetic. And that's exactly what happens. Is you is they these coaches make promises a lot of times about what they're going to do and how they're going to develop them, and their definition of develop is. They run a batting. They run a practice with one kid hitting and the rest of them sitting in the field picking up baseballs. You're not developing anything, and that, and that's what drives me nuts. I and mean, that's not all coaches. Some coaches lead incredible practices and can develop, but it's hard to maintain that throughout an organization, including our organization. We're always working on that. But to call a kid and sell him on something for youth sports, I don't know, man. I just think that's really weird. Maybe I'm wrong, but I got better things to do with my time, like hanging out with my build a better marriage with my wife and, and, and relationship with my eight-year-old son. So I don't need to hang out with other people's families.
Okay, there we go. So I got I there. Got, you, there's a rant for you right there. You like that one? <laughs> Loved it. Uh, but no, I got two more questions here for you. Um, then we'll end it out. Um, so you talk about those new player meetings. You know, after tryouts in August, after tryouts in December. What all like entails those new player meetings? Like, what are some of the goals you have? Um, for those meetings, some of the things you're telling them. Obviously, I mean, you want to keep some of this in house, but like, what are some things that you you tell your new members? Just standards and expectations and things to expect with, we limit our pitch counts. Like when, when your kid has a no hitter, when he's nine years old and he's throwing a no hitter and he gets to fit, he's at 53 pitches. We already know we're taking him out at 55. We'll let him finish the hitter. So maybe he finishes with 60, but sorry, his nine-year-old no hitter, perfect game, whatever. It's fine. No college is going to ask about it. So we just give them a heads up on that. We just set those expectations, standards, parents, not, Parents aren't, they're not in a stance to coach. They're there to observe. Let it be the, it's the kid's game. It's not your game. When they step between the lines, let it be the kids. It's a free lab for the kids to fail and succeed. And we get to watch how they react. It's more important how the kids react to failure and and, and, and success than correcting them when they fail every time. And I, I wish more people, because they're going to fail a million times being baseball players. So let's get them, teach them how to deal with failure so they can pick their head up and make the next play instead of making them feel like a failure. And they look in the stands and you've got your head down, shaking your head, and your hands are on your face because you can't believe your son just made that error again. Chill out. They're nine years old. And and you weren't as good at baseball. In the st- you're in the stands. You weren't as good at baseball as you think you were. And your kid's going to be better because all kids these days are better. These kids blow me away. Like I wouldn't be a first round draft pick this day and age. If I threw as hard as I did and had to, I would have had to develop more. Hopefully I would have, but whatever. I don't know. doesn't matter. And so we just, we develop those expectations and, and those standards. And we tell them the standards that they can expect from our coaches, which then we go into our coaches meeting and we tell them the standards we told the parents. And if they don't live up to those standards, then there we are going to get phone field phone calls from them and have to deal with stuff. And it's going to make their job. Now they can't coach baseball. They've got to deal with fires all the time. And so do I, and we got to work all that stuff out instead of coaching baseball. So live up to the standards, follow the protocols. If we do what we say we're going to do, then, then you can coach baseball. You don't have to worry about all the other stuff. And so that's, that's what goes both into the parent and the staff, the staff meetings is, is standards live up to the standards, hold us to our standards. Okay. All right, so we got two and a half minutes left. Let's see if maybe we could. Should I ask you, or do you think you're going to? Impossible. Gonna... Let's do it. Speed okay. round. This is All impossible. Right. So obviously Texas 12, you know, you've been with them for 13 years. Coach Bennett, you, Coach Hot, you guys have all built just a huge, great program. But going into these next couple of years, what is the vision that you see for the organization and for yourself as a director slash coach and just a member of the organization? Uh, our goal to be the best organization, baseball organization, in the United States, regardless of how many trophies we bring home, regardless of the accolades, win and loss records, if we can be the most respected baseball program in the country, regardless of that stuff, we're already doing that stuff, not worried about it, regardless of that stuff, when we create a, a great youth sports experience for our kids, that's what we need to be doing. And if we create those great opportunities for the kids or great, great experiences, um, we will maintain the players we have, the caliber of players we have, and now we become, again, to summarize it, the most respected baseball program or one of the most respected baseball programs in the United States, regardless of the accolades and outcomes. 
And I think that's a large task. And that speaks to the non-baseball off the field stuff more than the baseball. Cause I'm a, I play, that's what I know the best showing up to practice and teaching it. That's not the problem. I'm not saying that it's always easy to explain to a kid how to do a thing, but I've explained that thing 8 million times. I'm not worried about it. We're going to figure it out. We have years to figure that out, but taking care of the families is the bigger task. And I think that's what people lose sight of. Um, but and I also think that people don't know how to do that because baseball guys are not generally base business guys and business guys are generally not baseball guys. But our secret sauce, it's not really a secret, but combine the two. And, and that's where people, they know it, but they know they have to do both, but that's where they struggle. And where I think we find our success. Okay, awesome. There we go. You beat it. You beat it. We got we, less than a minute still left. Have time to finish it? Uh, we do. We do. It just hit a minute. Good. So. Um, here we go. You know, like I have a great conversation here today. Really appreciate you coming on the JKR podcast for the Texas 12 baseball series. Um, you know, Texas 12 is one of the programs I've followed for a while. And I'm, I'm super pumped that, you know, Coach Bennett, Coach Knox, and I was talking to them, gave me the opportunity to, you know, do the, this six-week series interviewing all the coaches, directors, players, stuff like that. Um, but, no, just super pumped, you know, here to have this conversation here today. And I'm just super appreciative of you coming on the, on the JKR podcast. Thanks, Jace. Awesome opportunity. And I absolutely loved it. Thank you very much.